I'm Jenny. <laughs> I'm completely out of my comfort zone here, so bear with me. Um, so in preparing this testimony, thank you, Pete Larson. I borrowed heavily from a Christian witness I shared at a women's retreat at our church back in 2011, so about eight, nine years ago. And I thought back then I had a few interesting things and experiences to talk about at that point in my life. Um, but little did I know at the time, shortly thereafter, <clears throat> I was about to confront and fight the most difficult battle of my life so far. And I'll get to that more in a little bit. But for the moment, allow me to travel a little bit down memory lane. <clears throat> and as I told Steve, I was starting out with the day I was born. He was like, oh my God, you're going way back then. <laughs> I'll be briefly cover that. I was born December 2nd, 1965, four, at Little Company of Mary Hospital, a small Catholic hospital on Chicago's south side. My parents are Dennis and Mary Ann Sheehan, I am the second of five children with three brothers and a sister. I was baptized Virginia Marie Sheehan, named after my two grandmothers, and like a good Irish Catholic girl, in honor of the Virgin Mary. As a young girl, I absolutely hated my name, Virginia. Who is named Virginia? No one, only grandmothers. Too old-fashioned, way too formal, childhood questions like, why are you named after a state? And later, so Virginia, you still a virgin. But over time, however, I've come to embrace my name and I feel privileged. I've always been drawn to Our Lady and have felt a special connection to her. She is our perfect mother in heaven, always leading us gently to her son. I've created, created quite, a, quite a shrine to our Blessed Mother, accumulating books, statues, medals, rosaries, beautiful Madonna portraits, and we proudly display them in our home, along with other religious artwork, including Celtic crosses, crucifixes, angels, the Last Supper, the Resurrection, and so on. I recall my friend once laughing, my God, it feels like a church in here but I guess I want our home to feel like a prayer in a sense, surrounded by reminders of our faith and God's presence. I find it comforting. The most important people in our lives are our cherished loved ones, our parents, our spouses, our children. And on all accounts, I have been so very blessed. I have, a wonderful, I have wonderful parents and siblings. My family of origin has always been my strong foundation. From the beginning, I was made to feel unconditionally loved and a unique child of God. I had a great childhood, simple, um, no frills, yet very happy and many fond memories. My parents were both Catholic high school teachers in Chicago. Dad taught history, mom taught Latin and English. I suppose you'd call my dad the old school Irish Catholic, very demonstrative in his faith. Mom, the German, more stoic and reserved though I believe more spiritual than she ever let on. 
Dad would lead us in grace at dinner and bedtime prayers. He attends mass multiple times a week. He prays the rosary every day and fasts quite often for his many private intentions, mainly as children and grandchildren. They provided a wonderful example of a loving marriage and cultivated a strong sense of identity and commitment to our faith, our family, and our country. After nine years of Catholic grade school, I attended Mother Macaulay Liberal Arts High School, the largest all-girls Catholic high school in the country, at least at the time. I sailed through high school, had fun, studied hard, excelled academically, made great friends, some of my best friends today. I received a four-year academic scholarship to Marquette University run by the Jesuits, so off to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, I flew. August 1982, the very first day of my freshman year at Marquette, there we were, 40 eager freshmen selected to attend a Christian leadership retreat with the Jesuits up in northern Wisconsin. We're all standing on Wisconsin Avenue outside Jesu Church in the center of Marquette's campus. And there was this guy with really big eyes, laughing, cracking jokes, telling stories, the center of attention. Confident guy, I'll admit, funny, but a little too loud and boisterous for my taste. And yes, his name was Steve Lakey. I guess you can say it wasn't love at first sight, but before long we were dating and went on to date exclusively all through college. Until the very first week of senior year, he broke up with me, completely out of the blue as I recall it. He'll deny it, but I distinctly remember him saying, I need to sow some oats before I graduate. Where is he? Where is he? <laughs> yes, my first real love gave me my first broken heart. I sobbed for weeks, but eventually came up for air with a brand new attitude. Two can play that game. It's time for me to sow a few oats of my own, and I did. But shortly before graduation in 1986, we reconciled and reunited at a Brian Adams concert, as I recall. But by that time, we had both accepted great jobs in different cities. He went to work for Procter & Gamble in Des Moines, Iowa. Woohoo! And I, an accounting major and a newly branded CPA, took a job with the big accounting firm Arthur Anderson back in Chicago. And so began our three-year long-distance relationship. We agreed we could see other people, and a don't ask, don't tell kind of policy, and we'd fly back and forth as much as possible. And this was a really awesome arrangement for a while. Now enter, we'll call him Mark. Mark and I worked together at Anderson, and this gets a little awkward, but he knows the whole story. And believe me, he was dating up a storm in the cornfields of Iowa. <laughs> I know that. So one casual date with Mark leads to several, and before long, things are pretty serious. I was falling for another guy, and for the first time picturing my life with someone other than Steve. I'm more of an out of sight, out of mind kind of gal, and Mark had the home court advantage. Torn between two lovers, shame on me. Steve was flying into Chicago from Des Moines for a visit one weekend. He was arriving on Friday night. I was meeting him at the airline gate, as we could back in the day, and I couldn't wait to see him. I get a phone call from Mark. He's been on a client assignment in Des Moines, Iowa, 
and he too is flying back from Chicago that Friday night. Let's get together. Meet me at the gate. I couldn't bleeping believe it. You have got to be kidding. What are the chances that Steve and Mark are on the exact same flight? I think someone above had determined that these shenanigans had gone on long enough and it was time to make a decision and commit. So I went to the airport that night, I went to the gate, and I embraced my man, and we all know his name is Steve Lakey. Well, Mark and I did not get together. Our roommates at the time did. A coincidence? I think not. My roommate was Leanne. His was George. We introduced the two of them. Fireworks flew. Within four months, they were engaged. Less than a year later, married. And they're still together today, happily, I hope, with five grown children. I like to think that maybe the Holy Spirit was moving somewhere in the midst of that mess, that perhaps we were as instruments in bringing Leanne and George together. Maybe things actually do happen for a reason. Shortly thereafter, now 1989, I was packing my bags. Steve had been promoted with PNG and was now living in Minneapolis. I put in for an office transfer with Arthur Anderson, and it came through. So off to the Twin Cities, I flew. Enter some of the greatest blessings in our lives. Pete and Lynn Larson and all of our dear friends here at Family Fest Ministries. The Pellers, the Morans, the Conleys, the Lankers, the Harmons, the Gendros, and others. At the time, Pete was running youth ministry at St. Pat's Church in Edina, where Steve and I became involved as youth leaders. We never met a more prayerful, spiritual group of peers who practiced and lived out their faith, and tons of fun, too. We feel so blessed and grateful to have been able to maintain our dear friendships long distance over these past 30 years, to have our kids get to know their kids, and to experience the wonderful gift of Family Fest Ministries with our family and all of you. But back to our love story. Steve and I finally got engaged almost nine years after dating right here in Minnesota, and that's a very funny story too, although it has nothing to do with our faith journey. But suffice it to say, Steve made me work very hard for that ring. He basically sent me on this two, three hour wild goose chase scavenger hunt all around the Twin Cities, ultimately ending up at the Minneapolis airport, greeted by none other than Pete Larson, incognito, disguised in a sailor suit for some reason, standing at the gate. And of course, Steve was there too with ring in hand. Lynn, I think you were video, video camcording the whole thing. We didn't have cell phones back in the day. And uh, of course I said yes. We married in 1991 in a big Catholic church wedding with all the bells and whistles back at Marquette's Jesu Church in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where we met that very first day, our freshman year in college. And I had absolutely no doubt this was the man I was born to marry. We wanted to start our family right away. I was 27 years old then. We quickly learned, however, that things don't always work out according to our own plans. Some hi someone higher up is in control. And so began our seven-year journey through infertility. During this time, Steve's job took us back to Chicago for a few years and then a big career move out to Boston, Massachusetts for five years. I was fortunate enough to land a great investor relations job with a clinical research company there as well, which was rewarding and a good distraction. 
But really, all I wanted, all we wanted, was a baby, was a baby. Patience has never been a strong virtue of mine. I tend to like things my way in my time. I guess decided, God decided it was time to do a little work on me in that area. He likes to do that, I think, make us better people, polish us up a little bit. He wants us to become more like him. We need to become more like him. Being unable to conceive was extremely painful, frustrating, and a very sad and lonely time. I want to want something you've dreamt about your whole life and to have little control over getting it. The years of medical treatments didn't really phase me. Any means to an end was my attitude. Lots of medications, pills, needles, injections, surgical procedures, ultrasounds, acupuncture, dozens of artificial inseminations, and ultimately seven in vitro fertilizations. What seemed like hundreds of negative pregnancy test results month after month with devast a devastating reality that still there was no baby. I didn't like talking about our infertility struggles, but Steve finally persuaded me to join a couple's infertility support group with five other couples. And sure enough, just our luck, one by one, all the other couples became pregnant, all of them. That was rough. I was happy for them as, well as I was for all of our other friends who are having babies, but I definitely felt sorry for myself and very sad. My mom was one of the few people besides Steve I would open up to. She helped me appreciate that this was the first real struggle of my life, that up until now, by God's grace, things had always come pretty easily for me. She said everyone has their crosses to bear at some point during their lives. Hopefully, through God's grace, we can persevere and grow stronger and wiser in the process. Try to focus on other opportunities and blessings in our lives appreciate what you have rather than dwell on what you don't have. I'm not sure, I'm quite sure, I did not grasp and believe all this at the time, but I tried and I prayed. She would always remind me at the end, reassuring me one way or another the babies will come and that I would be a mother one day. And she was right. How our moms are such blessings in our lives. About five years into our infertility battle, I had an extremely vivid dream. I dreamt we had had twins and that God was telling me everything was going to be okay. I can't explain it, and that only filled me with a sense of excitement, but a sense of calm, a sense of peace. We would be parents somehow, some way. It's in God's hands. We decided to suspend infertility treatments and began planning and preparing to adopt a child. We jumped into the adoption process full steam, interviews, home studies, Photo albums, birth mother letters, we were approved and waiting for our baby to arrive. A year and a half passed, and the letter arrived that our adoption agency went bankrupt and had closed its doors. I think the Lord knew I was at my breaking point because almost simultaneously we learned I was pregnant with twins. A coincidence? I think not. I had quietly gone back for one more IVF, our seventh in vitro fertilization, and surprisingly, miraculously, it worked this time. In December 1998, after seven years of trying to conceive and seven in vitro fertilizations, at the age of 34, our twins were born, Stephen and Bridget. They're now juniors in college and just celebrated their 21st birthday. I should also add another huge blessing in all this was living in the state of Massachusetts at the time. Being one of the most liberal states in the country with very generous insurance mandates, all of our in vitros were covered by insurance. 
all seven of them. Otherwise, we probably would have never been able to afford those treatments, and our twins might not be here today. Our God is so good, and he is so faithful. Six months after the twins were born, a job opportunity in Chicago fell into Steve's lap, and we found ourselves moving back to the Midwest. As much as we loved our time in New England, it was wonderful to return home to our families with our new little family. We bought a home in Libertyville, a northwest suburb of Chicago, and we lived in the same house for over 20 years now. After the twins, surprisingly, miraculously, three more babies followed, this time all naturally and easily conceived. Sadly, we lost one to miscarriage, but then we welcomed our daughter, Mary Claire, followed by our son, Brendan. She's now 18, a senior in high school, and he's 15, a freshman. Four children, two boys, two girls. I guess dreams and prayers sometimes do come true. Just when you feel you're at the end of your rope, he rescues us. Procreation is truly a gift from God. It's still a miracle, it's still a mystery, and every human life is irrefutably precious and sacred. And who knows why, now I'm 40 years of age, after all those years of infertility and waiting, I'm suddenly fertile myrtle. God can certainly have a sense of humor at times. He looks for ways to get our attention, stir things up, remind us that he's in control, that his plan might actually be better for us in the long run. We need to trust him. He truly makes all things work together for our good. Jumping forward to 2003, I'm driving down to the south side one afternoon with the kids to visit my folks. I'm talking on the phone with mom. She mentions that her routine visit to the doctor showed some irregularities in her blood work. That marks the beginning of mom's five-year battle with multiple myeloma, a rare and incurable blood cancer. She was asymptomatic for the first year or so, then started an aggressive drug, drug regimen to help keep the cancer in check. Around this time, Steve's mom also learned she had cancer, ovarian cancer. They surgically removed a large mass, followed by several rounds of chemo. Both grandmas were battling for their lives at the same time. Steve's mom has been cancer-free for almost 15 years now, praise God. My mom was not as fortunate. Drug therapy was no longer working, so the next step was a stem cell transplant up at Mayo. The chemo treatments were brutal. While I visited it as, as often as I could, my dad tended to all of mom's needs. Their roles were reversed for the first time, and my dad was the most devoted caregiver, and mom was incredible. So tough and strong, I never heard her complain. What amazing parents I've been blessed with. The transplant only bought mom 10 extra months. The cancer was back with a vengeance. There were no other treatment options. Towards the end, mom needed daily blood transfusions, particularly blood platelets. We wore the same blood type, so I became a regular visitor to Life Source to donate blood. I, I could specifically designate mom as my recipient. It was the least I could do and brought me some comfort knowing I was helping, keep, was helping to keep mom alive a little longer. I think of sweet Bebo Getchell battling leukemia. Donating blood literally saves lives every single day. It is truly the gift of life and an act of love. Christmas 2007, mom's favorite time of year. She always made it a big deal and was over, over the top that year. New Year's Day that evening, mom quietly says she isn't feeling well. Take me to the hospital. She was admitted to Christ Hospital on January 1st, 2008, and she would never leave. 
During those final days at the hospital, mom was relatively alert till the very end. She never shed a tear. There was no discussion of multiple myeloma or death. A priest friend visited several times and mom received her final sacraments. It was our time as a family to be together. My sister's husband, Will, was a Marine on his second tour in Iraq at the time. He was supposed to be home by, by Christmas, but things had been delayed. Mom kept asking, is Will here yet? January 12th, a homecoming. Will finally arrived back in the States. I remember him walking into mom's hospice room and giving her a big hug. She was so happy, smiling ear to ear. Maybe relieved is the better word. Her daughter's husband and grandchildren's father was home from the war. Her heart was at peace. Within hours of that reunion, mom quietly passed. Just minutes past midnight, January 13th, 2008, my dad's birthday. At first we thought, oh no, not on dad's birthday, the worst of possible days. But then I thought, how fitting for soulmates. Dad was born into earthly life on January 13th, and mom was reborn into eternal life on January 13th, her heavenly birthday. I shared that perspective with dad, and he seemed to like that. We went back to their home that night, the saddest day of our lives, and I baked a birthday cake. That's what mom would have wanted. All the grandkids made grandpa cards and sat on his lap, hugging him as we sang happy birthday. He listened quietly and smiled through his tears. Thank God for our family during seasons of great sadness. Mom's funeral was a bitter cold day in January in Chicago. We couldn't believe all the people who came to her funeral mass. It was packed with lines out the door. I remember thinking, who are these people? This is my own mother's funeral, yet there were so many unfamiliar faces. So many students they had taught in their years as high school teachers, current and former, fellow teachers, former classmates, childhood friends, neighbors, parishioners, members of the community. I heard so many stories that day and read so many cards and letters expressing how my mom and dad had touched their lives, had made an impact on their lives in some big ways, but mostly small, simple ways. All my life, my parents would tell me how proud they were of me. Yet that day, it made me stop in my tracks and realize, wow, what amazing parents I have. I am so very proud of them and thankful beyond measure. Losing mom was devastating for all of us. She was a force of nature, smart, strong, elegant, sarcastic, and completely gave of herself to her family. She was the matriarch, totally ran the show. Now this gaping hole and huge empty void. That first year, I felt like there was this heavy fog hovering over my life. Time passes and it does get a little easier. I think the hardest part has been witnessing the silent suffering of my dad over the last 12 years. Truly his purgatory on earth. He has never been the same. Such a big part of him died that day mom left us. He carries her photo next to his heart and still writes her little love notes. He's one of the holiest persons I know. And now at age 86, I know he longs for heaven and seeing my mom's face once again. But I am totally convinced, after all the little signs, winks, and miracles over the last 12 years since mom passed, 
that our departed loved ones, whose souls are fully united with the Holy Trinity, are present here with us every single day, powerfully moving in our lives, coming to our aid, and comforting us. So reach out to them, talk to them, pray to them. They are members of the communion of saints, and they want to intercede for us. Fast forwarding to 2011, I decide to participate in a women's faith enrichment experience through our church. It's called CHIRP, which stands for Christ Renews His Parish. It's a six-month spiritual formation journey with 20 other women. We would gather together to study scripture, share, pray, encourage one another, all in an effort to deepen our faith. Part of this formation was sharing my personal faith story. Coming out of CHIRP, I was on a high. My faith and prayer life were on fire, and I felt renewed in Christ. My prayer life was rich and fruitful. I was devouring scripture, spiritual books, going to mass frequently, receiving the sacraments, praying the rosary and divine mercy chaplet, blasting my K-Love Christian music, evangelizing everyone I could. My kids laughingly refer to it with rolling eyes as mom's religious fanatic phase. I had a heightened sense of the living presence of God at work around me and in me. I was actively seeking God. I wanted to please him and fully surrender to his will and plan for my life. I truly never felt more connected or close to Jesus. But I also distinctly remember one of my spiritual director's side comments at the time. Hold on tight, because you know, as you grow in holiness and as you grow closer to Jesus, Yes, the blessings come, but so often, too, do the struggles and the suffering. Look at the apostles, the devoted disciples of Jesus, all the great martyrs and saints of history, tragic stories of immense suffering. Jesus sometimes draws us into his suffering so that we may come to know him and love him more deeply. That remark not only struck me, it haunted me. Life was really good at the time, pretty much smooth sailing. We are so fortunate, and I was very grateful. But in the back of my mind, there was this creeping fear. When is the shoe going to drop? God, what are you preparing me for? It's now 2013. I'm approaching a significant milestone, the big 5-0. I never obsessed that much about aging or getting older, not that big of a deal. I'm now finding myself in the midst of the change of life, shall we say, the big M, menopause, sorry gentlemen. All of the symptoms are in full swing, frequent hot flashes, bad night sweats, and so on and so on. But I was weathering it like a trooper. I've always had a pretty high threshold for physical discomfort, and I'm not a big complainer. But what I did not expect, and was definitely not prepared for, was that I was about to completely lose my mind, literally. We're talking full-blown, acute, debilitating, devastating, dark, psychotic, suicidal, mental illness. Deep depression, severe anxiety, and the worst of it, extreme paranoia, delusional disorder. Almost a complete break from reality, as you and I know it. It was like I was transported to another world, an altered, distorted, bizarre, menacing, terrifying, completely false perception of my surroundings and my life. My thoughts and feelings were so irrational, nonsensical, and crazy that as I sat down to try to write about it, my head was spinning. 
It's almost impossible to articulate because none of it made any sense, but I'll attempt to boil it down. I was absolutely and defiantly convinced that the world was out to get me. There was this massive global conspiracy determined to expose me and ultimately destroy me. I refer to it as the network. And everyone was in on it. Our social circle of friends, our neighbors, teachers at school, clerks at the grocery store, our priests, heck, the whole Catholic church. Yes, Pete and Lynn and all of our friends here in Minnesota, even complete strangers. Aside from close family members, I trusted no one. They were constantly following me on the streets, in my car, at school, in stores, in church. Our house was bugged. Our phones were tapped. They were sending coded messages through my computer, through the television, through the radio, billboards, hand signals, gestures, actions, glances, even hats and clothing they'd wear. And believe me, that's just a glimpse into the insane, wacko cuckoo thoughts and convictions I held. The first phase of my illness was marked by hysteria, I guess you could say. I kept a journal where I would ferociously, ferociously scribble notes, all of my nonstop intruding thoughts and phobias, every observation, instance, maps, diagrams, any and all evidence proving the conspiracy, the network, and their assault on me. Behind closed doors so the kids wouldn't hear, in a frenzy, I would constantly demand Steve's attention, frantically babble on and on and on and desperately dump all this garbage at his feet. And more than that, I would beg him, plead, do something, fix it, stand up for me, defend me, you're my husband, make it stop. You might be asking yourself, why did I believe the whole world was out to get me? And this too is completely convoluted and twisted quite humiliating, and maybe the better word is humbling. But I believed, unbelievably, that I was pure evil, that I was the unforgivable sinner. To the point where one night I dragged Steve with me to the pastor of our church, imploring him to perform an exorcism. I told you it was crazy. And God bless our priest because he looked immediately at Steve square in the eye and was the first one to actually say, Jenny is severely mentally ill and needs intensive professional treatment immediately. I was hospitalized twice in the psychiatric unit. The first time was February 2014. We were all packed to come up here to winter weekend. I think the van was even packed, and I was melting down. I was so convinced everyone here was in on it, imploring Steve to call Pete and interrogate him, find out if it's safe to come. I think it actually got physical with me pounding on Steve's chest. We, didn't, we never came to Minnesota that year. That first hospital stay did not do much. About a month later, I was hospitalized again. This time, I remember being backed into a corner in our bedroom, surrounded by five paramedics. I was screaming, crying, throwing things. Steve called 911. I vaguely remember being sedated, carried out on a stretcher, and waking up later in restraints with Steve by my side. This time they put me in the severely mentally ill ward with the hallucinating schizophrenics, poor souls with vacant eyes curled up in balls, mumbling in corners, such mental anguish and suffering. And I just remember thinking, how the hell did I get here? What has become of our life? My life, our lives. 
they put me on pretty heavy psychotic drugs at that point. They didn't really, they, they didn't stop the irrational thoughts, but I suppose they took the edge off the hysteria and they definitely took the fight out of me. I was so tired of fighting and I retreated. I couldn't face the outside world anymore, so I barricaded myself in my house and essentially became a prisoner in my own home. I didn't go to stores, restaurants, social events, school functions, all the kids' basketball games, football games, track meets, dance recitals, awards ceremonies, doctors, dentists, hair salons, church. I fell into a deep depression. I felt completely empty and dead inside. No joy, no happiness, no laughter, no desire to do anything, almost no emotion except this underlying sense of dread and despair. I spent most of my time in bed under the covers. I tried my best to go through the motions of being a mom. I dragged myself out of bed in the morning to help with breakfast, getting the kids off to school, only to go back to bed all day, then feeble attempts at making dinner, helping with homework, then back to bed. Most of our day-to-day -day life and responsibilities fell on Steve, and I drank, and I drank a lot, secretly. Oftentimes a bottle of wine or more a day. I'd hide the empty bottles around the house and squirrel them into the trash so Steve wouldn't notice. Of course, he wasn't that stupid. A real low point was when our teenage son Steven stumbled upon a whole collection of empty bottles hidden in my bedroom. The look of shock and fear on his face I'll never forget, and me sobbing, I'm sorry, and begging him not to tell Dad. It was horrible. I put on at least 30 pounds then. I didn't even notice. I didn't even care. I rarely looked in the mirror. I hardly brushed my teeth, washed my face, combed my hair, took a shower, changed my clothes. I recall looking at old photos of myself thinking, who is that unrecognizable person behind the bright smile with light in her eyes? Will she ever return? I have such compassion and empathy now for the mentally ill. It's still a stigma and so misunderstood, shameful, difficult to talk about, often hidden, challenging to diagnose and treat, usually incurable and extremely and silently painful. I couldn't drug it away, drink it away, think it away, sleep it away, talk it away, will it away, wish it away, or pray it away. I remember when one of my favorite actors, Robin Williams, took his own life. Everyone was shocked, but I got it. The deep despair, not wanting to face another day, almost unbearable. I felt that way, but two things stopped me. First, the faces of my children. Their lives mean more to me than my own. I could not and would not intentionally abandon them that way. And second, the face of Jesus. The misery of hell has to be a thousand times worse than the misery I'm suffering now. I did not want that to be my eternity. I still had a glimmer of hope. I wanted to see the face of Jesus someday. So it went on like this till the spring of 2017. The darkness initially descended in 2013 as our twins were entering high school. And for some unexplained reason, miraculously, four long years later, the fog just so slowly started to lift around March 2017, just as they were nearing their high school graduation. Not sure how or why, it's just things got better. Getting out of bed became a little easier. I was having more productive days. I began venturing outside of the house. The inner agitation, tremors, and gripping fears and paranoias were drifting away. I mark Easter Sunday 2017 as a significant turning point when it dawned on me. I think I'm actually happy today. For the first time in a long, long time, I remember smiling a real smile, 
laughing, talking, enjoying the company of my family. It was a joyful day, and finally I felt peace of mind. How I longed for peace of mind. Easter Sunday, the day of Christ's resurrection, I too felt as if I had risen from the dead. That spring season, after having missed pretty much all of their high school years, I was so thankful to be able to fully participate in and joyfully celebrate Stephen and Bridget's high school graduation and all of their end-of-year senior year activities. What a blessing to have fun with them and just be there for them again. God is good. God is faithful. And the rainbow after the storm is so beautiful. I recall sitting down with my psychiatrist who I hadn't seen in a while. He took one look at me. He immediately knew something was drastically different. Over the last four months, I had weaned myself off all of my medications and I never felt better. No more irrational, delusional thoughts, no more paranoias and phobias, no more anxiety, no more depression, no more drinking, and I lost a big chunk of those 30 pounds. I'm cured, I'm healed, I said. He was stunned, speechless. This never happens. It's extremely rare for such severe psychoses to just go away. It's a lifelong sentence that one endures with hopes of managing and controlling through ongoing medication and therapy. I can't explain this, he said. I can, I said. It's God. It's totally God. And oh, by the way, I added, you scientists really need to invest in and do more research on mental health issues unique to women, specifically menopause-induced psychosis, because while I can't prove it and while it's extremely rare, I do believe there is a connection. So where was God during this four-year battle of the mind and spirit? No doubt he was there. He never left me. He was fighting for me when I could not fight for myself. Although, honestly, I have to confess, I did not and I could not feel his presence. I felt nothing. My prayer life completely dried up. I did not pray. I could not pray. I did not want to pray. I didn't blame him. It's just I had nothing to say. I felt completely empty inside and totally alone. I kept my mom's photo and her angel medallion that she wore during her battle with cancer on the dresser beside my bed, and I clung to my rosary, often sleeping with it, how we turn to our mothers first when we're hurting. Although I felt alone, however, somewhere deep down inside, I knew in my head, intellectually, that I was not alone, that I had not been abandoned by God. I now thank God for the gift of my faith, that virtue by which we believe in God and all that he has revealed, although we may not necessarily feel it in our hearts. My faith had been cultivated and nurtured over 50 years by my parents, family, Catholic school teachers, friends, priests, and our faith communities. That faith that burned so fervently after my chirp renewal experience. I subconsciously clung to that. While I didn't feel any spiritual intimacy with God, I remembered it. I remembered feeling that way in my previous life. I had constant reminders of our Lord displayed around our home, as I've mentioned, the house that I rarely left, the house around which I would pace and pace and pace, gazing at these images of God who seemed so distant, but who I believed in my head was still there in the shadows with me. Now looking back and reflecting, boy, can I see how God was working and moving in my life during that time of despair, always throwing me lifelines, 
providing those candles of light in the darkness. Even when I don't see you're working, even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop working. You never stop working. I can now thank God for so many of the daily blessings he offered. I thank God I didn't have to hold down a full-time job and that Steve had a successful career that abundantly provided for us and allowed him to work from home and be there for the kids and me when we needed him most. I thank God for our lovely home that I rarely left. It's quiet setting with big windows allowing the sunshine to pour in and beautiful views of fields and trees and flowers and blue skies. That was a little comforting. I thank God we weren't hit with any other major obstacles or tragedies during my illness. No deaths in the family, no illnesses, no accidents, no job losses, no major issues with the kids. Just living day to day, trying to parent and love four growing children. I thank God I didn't become an alcoholic and fall into addiction with the excessive amounts of alcohol I was consuming. I'm relieved to say I can enjoy an occasional glass of wine today, and that's about it. I thank God for our loyal and loving golden doodle Lambo, his ever-present warm body by my side, even though I could hardly bring myself to pet him during that time. And I thank God for all the people who God chose to work through and offer help through. My psychiatrist and psychologist, our priests who offered spiritual counsel and guidance, all those people in our outer circle, neighbors, teachers, friends, who didn't know the details but knew something was wrong offering play dates and carpools and tutoring and meals and words of encouragement, or simply not prying, gossiping, or passing judgment. In our inner circle, our parents, our siblings, our close friends, who knew the gory details and were tremendous mental and emotional support for Steve, the kids, and myself. Our, few, our four beautiful, strong children who were so resilient and understanding and compassionate while their mother was in so many ways absent that while I'm sure they carry emotional scars today, they all seem to move forward, laugh, play, succeed, and thrive. I thank God for all the countless prayers that were being said for me and our family, that while I couldn't pray, I know so many others, present company included, were praying hard for us. And last, but certainly not least, I thank God for one of the greatest. <sighs> if not the greatest blessings of my life, my husband, Steve. He was an absolute rock through all of it. He fully and completely took on, without complaint, while performing his high-pressure job, all of the burdens of holding our family together, maintaining the home, making the meals, cleaning, shopping, running errands, paying bills, tending to all the kids' physical and emotional and psychological needs, their homework, school functions, extracurricular activities, calming their fears about mom, and helping in every way possible me, his mentally ill wife, suffering right along with me, feeling my pain, all the while receiving very little, if any, emotional or physical intimacy in return. He definitely earned his sainthood. All of this helped me appreciate that we are literally the mystical body of Christ here on earth, the physical presence of Christ in the world. We need to be his eyes and his ears and his hands and his arms and his feet and his heart, reaching out to others, helping others in his name and in service to God. 
So listen to those whispers. Be open to the gifts and promptings of the Holy Spirit. We need to bring God's love to others. We can be the miracles that people need in their lives. Almost two weeks ago Tuesday, I had an opportunity to attend a pre-Lenten afternoon of reflection for, for women at a nearby Franciscan retreat center. First, we read and pondered the biblical story of Rachel, Rachel's patience and humility, perseverance, and her complete trust in God. It really spoke to me. Then we spent time in adoration before the Blessed Sacrament of the Eucharist, followed by Mass, and then the Sacrament of Reconciliation, Confession. I hadn't been to confession in seven years or so since before my illness, and I missed it. I sat down face-to-face with a kind, compassionate priest whom I never met, and unloaded everything that had happened over the last seven years, sobbing and incoherent at times, I'm sure. I wasn't there so much to seek forgiveness for my sins, although certainly I did that, but rather to express what a truly grateful heart I have for being healed and restored, for all the blessings, big and small, that we've received, for once again feeling a passion for my faith, and for seeing and feeling the love of God again. I recall some of Father's final words being, welcome back, welcome home. And boy, do you have a faith story to share. And I agreed, someday I'll have to share my journey. Little did I know it would be so soon. For literally the next morning, last a week, two weeks ago, Wednesday, I opened my email, and there in my inbox, staring back at me, is a message from none other than Pete Larson, Stephen Ginny. Will you consider sharing your testimony at Winter Weekend? A coincidence? I think not. We're talking a major God wink, or more like a huge push by the Holy Spirit. In Father's sermon at Mass that day, he, asked, he talked about the struggles and suffering we're sure to face in this life, all of us, to some degree or another. It's part of the human condition, and it's inevitable. This world we call Earth is flawed. There is evil. There are tragedies of all sorts and death. The world is not perfect, but it is also only temporary, a speck of dust in the ocean of eternity. Jesus never promised we would have a life without suffering. He never promised happiness in this world, but in the next. No one suffered more than the man Jesus, falling three times carrying his heavy cross, enduring a brutal scourging and crucifixion, then taking on the unbearable weight of all of our sins, all of mankind, descending into hell, feeling completely abandoned and deprived of his Father's love. But then, in all of his divine power and glory, and out of pure sacrificial and self-giving love for us, he conquers all. He defeats death and damnation, rises to new life, and then ascends to the Father to open the heavenly gates and prepare a seat for us, his beloved children. The overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Sometimes he draws us into his suffering, But he promises that our suffering will not last and that he will one day wipe away every tear from our eyes. And perhaps our struggles and trials here can even serve some greater purpose, that they too can be redemptive, in some way be life-giving and draw us closer to him to help us make us more like him. But we must always remember God promises that we are never alone in our suffering, never. He sees and deeply feels everything we're going through, 
He is here with us, ever-present. He holds on tight to us and never lets go. Through the calm and through the storm and every high and every low, our Lord never lets go. In the eye of the storm, you remain in control. In the middle of the war, you guard my soul. You alone are the anchor when my sails are torn. Your love surrounds me in the eye of the storm. He takes our hand. He carries us in our, his arms if necessary. He is the way maker, the miracle worker, the promise keeper, the light in the darkness. And he promises that the best is yet to come, that this is not our home. It's not our home. Our God loves us so completely and perfectly. He not only invites us into relationship with him, he wants to be our absolute everything. He thirsts for our love in return. He hungers for us. We need to cling to him, to trust him, and to unite our hearts with the sacred heart of Jesus. And with his unfailing love and strength, we can persevere in this temporal life, maybe even find some meaning and peace in the struggle, and with God's grace, live a joyful, hopeful life. But ultimately, he promises if we love him with all of our hearts and minds and being and strength and love our neighbors as ourselves, we will truly live. He will faithfully lead us to the promised land, to eternal life, in the home of our Father, where we can peacefully rest forever in the loving arms of our Savior and Redeemer, Jesus Christ.